Hello. Sounds of Zambia welcoming you to the leap of faith. More on that in a moment. But first, next Tuesday, frying pans will be warmed and lemons will be in short supply as we have the annual event known now as Pancake Tuesday. Before that, it was more often referred to as Shrove Tuesday and marked the preparations for Lent. I gave up um, alcohol and I gave up um, sweets and biscuits and my children have done the same because I do believe in Lent and I think in order to survive in this world you need a healthy mind, body and spirit and the spirit has to be fed as well. Giving up the booze for Lent, thought I should do something, get a bit fitter, give up the bottle of red wine. Surely we're into a period of self-flagellation now, we should move on and stick with the pain for as long as we can. I haven't given up anything for Lent. I haven't given up anything for Lent for a long time now. I just think the tradition of giving up things for Lent has passed. It doesn't mean to say that people aren't spiritual. People can be spiritual, but they don't have to carry on this tradition of giving up something for Lent. Oh yes, I I think uh, people should reflect on Lent and should give something up. It's a time to think of people who are less well off and to make some contribution to them. Some voices from the RTE archives on the subject of Lent. Well, cupboards were emptied of luxuries and historically weddings were postponed until after Easter. But things change. And tonight I'll talk with the Reverend Peter Owen Jones, who took the idea of 40 days and nights in the desert literally. And he'll share with us his experience from a BBC documentary he made on the life of St. Anthony. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, I'm Peter Owen Jones. I'm a vicar in the Church of England and I'm turning my world upside down. I'm on an extreme spiritual journey to find oneness with God in the eyes of three world religions. I'm starting my last journey in Egypt, in Cairo, the city of a thousand mosques. But I want to get into the mind of one of the most potent icons of all, St. Anthony of the Desert, a man who changed the course of Christianity. I'm going to the desert. This is actually my own Christian tradition. I'll be looking at the founder of the monastic movement, St. Anthony. But first, next time you post a letter, you may notice that there's a new series of stamps available commemorating the Irish abroad. Available from next Thursday, February 27th, they include one that features author Edna O'Brien, humanitarian worker Mary Elms, and Tullamore-born and Zambia-based Father Michael J. Kelly, acclaimed for his work as a priest and aid worker. Well, RTE Drama on One producer Kevin Reynolds joins me in the studio now to talk about Father Kelly. Kevin, welcome to The Leap of Faith. Before we talk about Father Kelly, the stamps that have been issued in commemoration, they really are a mark of the Irish abroad, aren't they? They are indeed. I mean, there's Edna O'Brien there, whom I've had the pleasure to meet and work with, and Mary Elms. And the man I'm here to talk about is Father Michael Kelly, who's a Jesuit, originally from Tullamore in County Offaly. And he is one of seven children, and three in the family became priests. How did you find yourself in Zambia in the first place? We better better sort that on. Well, I got involved through Belvedere College here in Dublin. My son goes there, and... Porik Swan, who's the Director of Faith and Services there, knew I worked in RTE. And he's over and back to a place called Chikuni. And there was an Irish missionary, Father Father Wafer, who's a Jesuit missionary who's worked in Zambia for most of his life. And his missionary has been with the Tonga tribe. And he promoted and preserved Tonga music, Tonga culture, 
and he left behind him an archive of about 550 tapes, reel-to-reels, quarter-inches. So we had a conversation as, as to how best we could go about preserving this, making sure that it, it's moved on into the next generation. So Porik, myself and a guy called P.L. Curran went over to Zambia for a week cataloguing these 540 tapes. We also brought home 17 tapes with us in varying conditions for digitisation and one of them included an All-Ireland final which obviously was sent out to Father Wafer back in the day. So um, it's just the variety of what's on them. We have to preserve them, digitise them and then get them back to Zambia so we can find out exactly what's on them because they will be in Tonga. Now, as is the serendipity of broadcasting, you find yourself in Zambia with Project A and then you come across Father Michael Kelly. Father Michael Kelly lives in Luisha House in Lusaka. I didn't know who he was. I found this elderly gentleman at breakfast because we stayed in Luisha House and uh, got talking to him and I said, could I have a few words with you? And he said, absolutely. And then I found out this man who left Tullamore, joined the Jesuits, went out to Zambia in 1954, um, has a master's in mathematics, um, left Zambia for four years only to do his PhD in Birmingham University, went back to Zambia and eventually ended up as dean of the University of Zambia, the first Zambian to hold that position because he took Zambian citizenship. Let's hear from the man himself. I'm Michael Kelly, Michael J. Kelly, a Jesuit, because there are two Michael Kellys here in Zambia, Jesuits, so I always make sure the J goes into it, that we can identify. The other one is Michael T. Kelly from down Kilkenny side. I'm from Tullamore in Ireland. I came out here to Zambia in 1955. I wasn't a priest then, I was a student at Scholastic, and... Uh, I spent three years here, very happy years. I went back and studied in Milltown Park and came back here then as a priest in 1963. And I've been here ever since, apart from being away for one fairly lengthy period of studies doing PhD. For a man born in 1929, Kevin, there's there's a lovely sprightly young voice, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. He's, he's, he's whip-smart and... An absolutely beautiful man, really spiritually, really deep, really grounded. And um, like he, he's done pioneering work out there, not only, in, I think it was Tony Blair who said, education, education, education. Mm-hmm. And he himself uses a great um, expression, as he, or he quotes another expression, education as a vaccine. He's been involved in education all his life, as they have there. But he's a parallel career he's had has been as a, an aid worker, uh, particularly in the field of HIV AIDS. Um, even to this day, there's 12 to 15 percent of a prevalence of HIV AIDS in Zambia. But thankfully, 70 to 75 percent of them are receiving HIV treatment. Transmission is still extraordinarily high, especially amongst young women through gender based violence, which unfortunately is expressed as sexual violence. But um, it's much more in control. And he was extraordinarily pioneering in talking about that, in thinking about that. He, he's, he's written about 15 books, including no, Leaving No One Behind, Young People in HIV, The Role of Women's Education, uh, The Negative Role That Stigma Has on People, an, ex- an extremely erudite, well-read, godly man. One of the big changes that I see in Zambia is what I mentally refer to as the culture of education. When I came here in 55, it was very hard to get kids to go to school. They were wanted by their families in the rural areas for herding cattle 
or for doing other work in the rural areas, in the urban areas, it just wasn't heard of to go to school. Nowadays, if a child is not in school, that child is extraordinary. People remark on that child, why isn't that child at school? That's a complete transformation in the country here, and that transformation has occurred within the last 50, 60 years, and I think it's a wonderful thing. And uh, it's not finished yet, and the education may have many faults and deficits. We don't deny that at all. But the people expect education for their children, and that's one of the very big changes that education itself has brought about. People realise you'll get nowhere unless you're educated. The passion of what he's talking about there um, and, and wanting to see that through, he actually was able to influence people at government level. When Zambia achieved her independence, um, the first president was Kenneth Kaunda and Father Michael Kelly taught his sons. So Kaunda obviously bought into the culture of education, as you mentioned there. Um, in 1955, the population of Zambia was two and a half million. Now it's 17 and a half million. And by 2050, you're looking at two in every five people on the planet being Africans. So the population explosion on the continent of Africa is something that is there. And to educate all of these people is a challenge in itself. The Jesuits have a mission in Chikuni, which is about 200 kilometres south of Lusaka. And they have a radio station there. And what they do is they broadcast the state curriculum out into the villages like Gwembe, Hampungo and there is teachers or facilitators there who pass on this to the children. Now, the reason this happens is that it is 10 miles to the nearest school, which is a fair stretch of the leg in good weather. But during the rainy season, it's absolutely impossible. And if you can imagine these villages, Michael, these are primitive villages because there is no electricity. There is maybe one borehole with a pump for water. And there's certainly no um, sanitary products. So young girls, when they come of menstrual age, they obviously stop going to school for obviously for the, for that reason, but also for reasons that they may be wanted around the house. So there is a gender card, there is a gender bonus to this uh, radio education, which is our medium, which is a really productive use of it. There's a gender bonus, whereas these young girls can be educated, can attend lessons in their own village at home. And this was facilitated by Trevor Bayliss's Wind Up Radio initially, but when I was out there, I saw Panasonic radios with batteries. The second big challenge in uh, Father Kelly's life out there would have been the arrival of the HIV virus and the role, I suppose, that was then taken on by people like himself in both prevention and treatment. Again, it comes back to education. Um, and he speaks particularly of a woman that he met who, who had a profound effect on him, a woman called Bridget Shamalefwi. Bridget Shamalefwi. How do you know about Bridget I must have written something or brought her name forward. Bridget was a very extraordinary good woman. She was a teacher, and she continued to teach even after she was diagnosed with HIV. When she was diagnosed with HIV, uh, at that time, the drugs were not available here within the country, and they had to be imported at very great cost. And we in the Jesuits, we offered to uh, get the drugs for her, and she said, no, I won't take the drugs until they're available to all my sisters and brothers throughout the country. And we said, but you know what the outcome is going to be? And she said, I, do that. I know that, 
I know that I will face a very severe end and it will come quickly. But in the meantime, let me talk about this disease to others, tell them to try and avoid it, help them to strengthen their morale against it, and let me also speak about it so that people are not afraid to talk about it. She was a wonderful woman, a wonderful example. I'd love to see her canonized. The story of a remarkable woman. Well, you can hear that Father Michael J. Kelly is a, is a feminist in the purest sense of the word. I mean, he is so supportive. He so recognises the role of women, not only in Africa, but right across the, the church. And, I mean, his, his thinking is radical. The women are a very important element of this, I believe. Because my own belief is that we're moving towards a church where we will have women priests. I won't see it, but please God, this century will see it. I would be very strongly in favour of giving more acknowledgement to women's role in the church. They're doing much of the spade work, but they have much more to do than that. Women in more administrative roles, actually administrative officers, and eventually themselves being going for ordination and eventually bishops. And why not a woman pope? After all, if we've had Margaret Thatcher and Theresa May and Angela Merkel, why not have Pope Theresa I? Kevin, I'm beginning to see why this man fascinated you. Well, he's a remarkable man. He's with a, with, a, with a real sense of mission. And uh, to see this, this man, like he, he eats Shima, which all Zamians eat, it's sort of a porridge made from maize. He eats that for breakfast every morning. He celebrates Mass at 6am, as he always did. He leads, he leads a regular monastic life, but still writing, still thinking, still talking, still praying, still being, still a priest. The voice of Father Michael J. Kelly there, talking with RT radio producer Kevin Reynolds. Thank you, Kevin. So Lent begins with Ash Wednesday next week. The purpose of Lent is the preparation for Easter by those of faith through prayer, penance, mortifying the flesh, repentance of sins, almsgiving and denial of ego. The event is observed in many churches, including the Anglican, Eastern Orthodox, Lutheran, Methodist, Reformed and Roman Catholic churches. Here in Ireland, it's still observed by those of faith and those without, becoming a time to stop smoking, lose weight or change a behaviour. But what of its origins? Well, to talk about this more, joining us from the BBC studios in Brighton is Anglican priest, author and television presenter, the Reverend Peter Owen Jones. Peter, welcome to The Leap of Faith. Thank you so much. Now, a number of years ago, you took Lent extremely seriously to the extent that you found yourself in the desert uh, recreating uh, the path of St. Anthony. Yes, that's right. I was, um, I think, holed up is probably the best description I was holed up in a cave uh, above St. Anthony's Monastery, about three miles out of St. Anthony's Monastery, right in the middle of the desert. And um, I did a lot of uh, very real solitary time there. I spent the time completely alone. And the concept of people spending time alone uh, has led to the idea, I suppose, in the Christian churches of Lent. You're, You're now a number of years after that particular event, did you keep anything of it with you? It's with me every day. It, if you're a if you're a man, a woman from from Western Europe, and you are literally parachuted into a desert, for us is a very alien land. Uh, and 
I think I saw one piece of green. I, I, I went for a walk and there was one tiny little purple flower. But apart from that, there are no trees. There is just rock and sand. And as an experience, um, in the context of a human life, it has proved to be utterly haunting and utterly unforgettable. And I would say that every day I, I, I go back there at some point or it reminds me of its existence. Peter, let's hear a moment from that programme when your mentor, Father Lazarus, notices a visible change on your face at the end of your time in the cave. How are you? Uh, I'm sort of, yeah, getting there. I'm getting there. Now. Getting there, eh? Yeah. Hey, but you're losing weight. Yeah, I've lost a lot of weight. Oh, are you okay? Yeah, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. Yeah, half the half the father I left before. <laughs> yeah, but I think this this is uh, face is uh, from mountain, gift of mountain now. Yes. Yeah, I think you look different. Oh well, I've got no idea what I look like. So. I'm happy. <laughs> Me also. I don't know what I look like. No, but I know what you look like. Yeah, well, I know what you look like too. Thank you for being there. It made such a difference that you were just there. I want to bless Father, bless you with this thought, to carry with you this, because uh, you'll go back to a place where there's full of, full of things. Mm. So I want you to carry this, this emptiness, yani this full emptiness, the full emptiness of the desert. Well, thank you, Father. I will never forget it. I, I could never forget it. You were under the special care, or tender care even, of Father Lazarus in, yes. in your time there. And he, he left you alone at a great part of the time. But mm. we've heard a clip of him saying to you that you had um, a change of face, a gift from the mountain. What did he mean by that? Yeah, I mean, he kind of came down after, after 28 days, I think it was. He, he came back down and we'd kind of finished the process. And, and it was incredibly moving. I hadn't had a conversation with anyone uh, during that time, pretty much. He just looked at me, and he, he clearly saw a change. I, I hadn't shaved, I, I hadn't washed, um, and um, I was eating a very, very meagre diet. I'd lost about two stone. And, um, yes, he said I had, a, I had the face of the mountain, which I think what he was saying was that the desert had found its way into me, inside me, uh, and was doing its work. But for the rest of the population, such a commitment to one's faith is probably not practical, uh, and we've replaced it, I suppose, with Lent. Is, is, it, is it enough? I'm not sure it is. I, I'm, I'm increasingly unconvinced by the manner in which um, the church that I belong to and the manner in which uh, Christianity as a whole kind of looks at Lent. It seems to have been really overwhelmed by um, by materialism, by capitalism. And so in most people's understanding, yes, give it, we give up chocolate, we give up beer. But I, I think the process that we're all being invited into at this time is much deeper, a, a much deeper time of reflection. And I think that the things perhaps we ought to be confronting are our capacity for anger, our capacity for bitterness, or to be confronting the places in our lives and the people in our lives that remain unforgiven. Um, Lent is a time essentially of, of purification, uh, and I'm not sure we're going to get there just by giving up chocolate. 
What do you do? I think it's about rewiring. I think it's about kind of, it's a time to kind of really reflect. You know, we've come out of the madness of Christmas. You know, we've endured to a certain degree all that January and February have thrown at us. But essentially, that's a gift. We go into winter and essentially we, we, we travel inwards. And Lent is really the culmination of that process. It's a time when we can fully engage with the parts of ourselves that we would rather ignore. We would rather, we would rather um, drink away. We would rather dance away. It's a time for very real spiritual renewal. And a final question for you, Peter, as uh, Ash Wednesday approaches and mm. Lent begins. Mm. What's on your list for this year? Well, I think I thought about this a little bit on in the car on the way over. Um, I've been struggling with with the breakup of, of, of a relationship that uh, I that meant a great deal to me. It's the most profound manner in which I've ever loved another human being. And sadly, um, that is no more. And so I think really Lent is for me to really try and try and come to terms with this and and to emerge hopefully on Easter Sunday uh, with a greater sense of love uh, and a greater sense of steadiness and peace um, and completion really around that. Um, it, it isn't, it's still an extraordinary gift within, within the Christian calendar. It's just how we, how, we, how we accept that gift, how we receive, how we receive Lent, uh, I think says a great deal uh, about each one of us. Peter Owen-Jones, thank you for joining us on The Leap of Faith. Thank you so much. The World Innovation Summit for Health, known as WISH, was established to help build a healthier world through global collaboration. At its most recent symposium, held last December, spirituality in the area of palliative care was a principal focus, as more than 250 faith and healthcare experts gathered together in Rome. CEO of WISH, Sultana Aftal, recently spoke with me from Doha, where the foundation is based, and I asked her about the approaches taken to palliative care by the three major religions represented at the conference. It was really interesting because one, we started the, the two-day symposium with a half-hour presentation from um, a Jewish perspective, a Christian perspective, and an Islamic perspective. And I would say to you there were so many commonalities, it was quite startling so more commonalities than differences, the, the respect of the dying process. The one that I th- think that I found most startling was the need for a, um, a patient who's dying or a, a loved one who's dying to be as much as possible within the constraints of obviously pain and other considerations to have a lucid mind when they're dying so that they are able to hear a prayer for the dying or can pray for themselves when they're dying. And this seemed to be something that was very common between the three religions. I suppose we should set it in context, because if a person is under the care of a palliative team, what's their objective? So their objective is to deliver the best care that they can within, um, from I would say, from a medical perspective. Um, So I think that when we had the medical perspective there, we were trying to convey that we need to look at a patient as holistically as possible. So looking at their physical needs, mental needs and spiritual needs. 
I think that's the message that we wanted to convey. Um, and the questions that we often got asked were, there are people out there who are secular, so why does why is this symposium important to them? And I said that, really, our faith touches them because even if they need to understand why we make certain decisions, for a healthcare practitioner to be irritated or annoyed that a patient has a faith-based belief in why he's making a certain decision that he might not necessarily believe in, I think is really important. That type of understanding will help him put that decision into perspective. So it's not a clinical decision. It could be very much based on his faith. And um, that, that really does color people's, whether you like it or not, it really does color people's perception of how they want to have their healthcare delivered. Well, in most cases, I presume we're talking about doctors using a, you know, a selection of drugs in order to re- reduce pain or eliminate it if at all possible. And your suggestion is that if that then takes away consciousness, that there's a dilemma. Yes, for some people, it is a dilemma. There are patients or families um, of loved ones who are dying who feel that sedating the, the, their loved one is possibly the best way because they can't, um, they can't uh, stand to see them in pain. Uh, but overwhelmingly, the impression that I got from a lot of the, f- the faith was as much as physically possible or, or po- possible, within the, again, within the constraints of the condition, they would want to be able to say a prayer for their loved one and them to hear it. I know in Christianity it's a pr- they, they say a prayer for the loved one. With, within Islam, we say a prayer ourselves as we're dying. So those are the last words that we prefer to, you know, to say um, before we pass. And therefore the patient must be aware when that time is coming. Yes, ideally it would be um, best to do that. And... I noticed in a lot of faiths, it, it's also that the, the other commonality that was uh, quite startling was that a lot of the faiths implied more than said that a person who's dying know he's dying because um, especially a person with faith, they, they, they do know when they're passing. I'm not just not to say that people without faith don't know, but I'm just saying that this is a conversation that was uh, that was uh, quite common within the symposium. Well, that also suggests that the process has, if any way, either doesn't recognise the fear or removes the fear of dying. I think faith gives you um, an, a great deal of comfort. Um, I've often said to people, uh, everybody has a crutch. Um, in, in, the, in the common day, people have chosen to use other things as ways of support, but all of us at some time in our lives need comfort and support. And uh, religion is one of those those crutches, or if you could say that, or a way that we can um, get support from something that we feel is a higher being than ourselves, something that is beyond what we see physically in front of us. Sultana Afdal, thank you for joining us from Doha tonight. Thank you. And before we go, we'd like to mark the life of the Reverend Father Godfrey O'Donnell, Father O'Donnell was a Jesuit priest for 28 years when he left the order in 1985 to marry. Godfrey and his wife Ruth became involved in the Greek Rite Church in Arbor Hill in Dublin and joined the Romanian Orthodox Church in 1999. In 2004, Father O'Donnell became the first Irish-born person to be ordained a Romanian Orthodox priest. He served as head of the Romanian Orthodox Church in Ireland and attended ecumenical and interfaith and state services. He died on Friday last February 14th. 
And that's our programme. Thank you for listening. From our producer, Sheila O'Callaghan, broadcast coordinator, Gerald Holland, and me, Michael Cummins. Till next week, goodbye.